Section six of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of Saint John, Volume one, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter one, verses twenty nine to thirty four. Christ the Lamb of God, Christ the Taker away of sin, Christ he that baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John chapter one, verses twenty nine to thirty four. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and bear record, that this is the Son of God. This passage contains a verse which ought to be printed in great letters in the memory of every reader of the Bible. All the stars in heaven are bright and beautiful, and yet one star exceedeth another star in glory. So also all texts of Scripture are inspired and profitable, and yet some texts are richer than others. Of such texts the first verse before us is preeminently one. Never was there a fuller testimony borne to Christ upon earth than that which is here borne by John the Baptist. Let us notice, firstly, in this passage, the peculiar name which John the Baptist gives to Christ. He calls him the Lamb of God. This name did not merely mean, as some have supposed, that Christ was meek and gentle as a lamb. This would be truth, no doubt, but only a very small portion of the truth. There are greater things here than this. It meant that Christ was the great sacrifice for sin who was come to make atonement for transgression by his own death upon the cross. He was the true lamb which Abraham told Isaac at Moriah God would provide. Genesis chapter 22 verse 8. He was the true lamb to which every morning and evening sacrifice in the temple had daily pointed. He was the lamb which Isaiah had prophesied that he would be brought to the slaughter. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. He was the true lamb of which the Passover lamb in Egypt had been a vivid type. In short, he was the great propitiation for sin which God had covenanted from all eternity to send into the world. He was God's lamb. Let us take heed that in all our thoughts of Christ we first think of him as John the Baptist here represents him. Let us serve him faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the rule of true Christian theology. 
we know nothing rightly about christ until we see him with john the baptist's eyes and can rejoice in him as the lamb that was slain let us notice secondly in this passage the peculiar work which john the baptist describes christ as doing he says that he taketh away the sin of the world christ is a savior he did not come on earth to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality he came to save sinners he came to do that which man could never do for himself to do that which money and learning can never obtain to do that which is essential to man's real happiness he came to take away sin christ is a complete saviour he taketh away sin he did not merely make vague proclamations of pardon mercy and forgiveness he took our sins upon himself and carried them away he allowed them to be laid upon himself and bore them in his own body on the tree first peter chapter two verse twenty four the sins of every one that believes on jesus are made as though they had never been sinned at all the lamb of god has taken them clean away christ is an almighty saviour and a saviour for all mankind he taketh away the sin of the world he did not die for jews only but for the gentile as well as the jew he did not suffer for a few persons only but for all mankind the payment that he made on the cross was more than enough to make satisfaction for the debts of all the blood that he shed was precious enough to wash away the sins of all his atonement on the cross was sufficient for all mankind though efficient only to them that believe the sin that he took up and bore on the cross was the sin of the whole world last but not least christ is a perpetual and unwearied saviour he taketh away sin he is daily taking it away from every one that believes on him daily purging daily cleansing daily washing the souls of his people daily granting and applying fresh supplies of mercy he did not cease to work for his saints when he died for them on the cross he lives in heaven as a priest to present his sacrifice continually before god in grace as well as in providence christ worketh still he is ever taking away sin these are golden truths indeed well would it be for the church of christ if they were used by all who know them our very familiarity with texts like these is one of our greatest dangers blessed are they who not only keep this text in their memories but feed upon it in their hearts let us notice lastly in this passage the peculiar office which john the baptist attributes to christ he speaks of him as him which baptizeth with the holy ghost the baptism here spoken of is not the baptism of water it does not consist either of dipping or sprinkling it does not belong exclusively either to infants or to grown-up people it is not a baptism which any man can give episcopalian or presbyterian independent or methodist layman or minister it is a baptism which the great head of the church keeps exclusively in his own hands it consists of the implanting of grace into the inward man it is the same thing with the new birth it is a baptism not of the body but of the heart it is a baptism which the penitent thief received though neither dipped nor sprinkled by the hand of man it is a baptism which ananias and sapphira did not receive though admitted into church communion by apostolic men 
let it be a settled principle in our religion that the baptism of which john the baptist speaks here is the baptism which is absolutely necessary to salvation it is well to be baptized into the visible church but it is far better to be baptized into that church which is made up of true believers the baptism of water is a most blessed and profitable ordinance and cannot be neglected without great sin but the baptism of the holy ghost is of far greater importance the man who dies with his heart not baptized by christ can never be saved let us ask ourselves as we leave this passage whether we are baptized with the holy ghost and whether we have any real interest in the lamb of god thousands unhappily are wasting their time in controversy about water baptism and neglecting the baptism of the heart thousands more are content with a head knowledge of the lamb of god or have never sought him by faith that their own sins may be actually taken away let us take heed that we ourselves have new hearts and believe to the saving of our souls notes john chapter 1 verses 29 to 34 verse 29 the next day this means the day after the conversation between john the baptist and the deputation of priests and levites the careful marking of days by st john at this stage of his gospel deserves particular notice seeth jesus coming unto him these words seem to prove that jesus was not present on the preceding day during the conversation with the priests and levites and that john's words standeth among you cannot be literally taken it seems probable as before observed that our lord came back to john after his temptation in the wilderness the spirit took him into the wilderness immediately after his baptism mark chapter 1 verse 12 and it was upon his return at the end of 40 days that john the baptist saw him again and saith behold this appears to have been a public open proclamation made by john to his disciples and the multitude who surrounded him behold that person who is coming towards us he is the lamb of god the messiah of whom i have been preaching to you and on whom i have told you to believe the lamb of god there can be no reasonable doubt that john gave this name to our lord because he was the true sacrifice for sin the true antitype of the passover lamb and the lamb prophesied of by isaiah isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 the idea that he only refers to the quietness and meekness of our lord's personal character is utterly unsatisfactory he is describing our lord's official character as the great propitiation for sin the expression lamb of god according to some signifies that eminent great divine and most excellent lamb it is a well-known hebraism to describe anything very great as a thing of god thus we read of thunderings of god and trembling of god exodus chapter 9 verse 28 first samuel chapter 14 verse 15 according to others it signifies the lamb which god has provided for all eternity and which god has long covenanted and promised to send into the world to be slain for sinners both views make good doctrine but the second seems the preferable one bengal thinks that john called our lord the lamb of god with a special reference to the passover which was then near john chapter 2 verse 13 he also sees a parallel between the expression lamb of god and the phrase sacrifice of god psalm 51 verse 17 which means the sacrifice which god acknowledges as pleasing to him chemnitius thinks in addition to other reasons why john calls our lord the lamb 
that he desired to show that Christ's kingdom was not political. He was neither the ram nor the he-goat described in Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. Taketh away. The Greek word so rendered is given in the marginal reading, beareth. Both ideas are included. It means, taketh away by his expiatory death. The Lamb of God beareth the sin of the world by taking it upon himself. He allowed our guilt to be laid upon him, and carried it away like the scapegoat, so that there was none left. It is one of the many expressions which describe the great scripture truth, that Christ's death was a vicarious sacrifice for sin. He became our substitute. He took upon him our sin. He was made sin for us. Our sins were imputed to him. He was made a curse for us. The word here rendered, taketh away, is found at least one hundred times in the New Testament. In eighty-two places it is rendered, take, take up, or take away. In five places it is, bear. In four it is, lift up. In two it is, remove. In most of the other places it is the imperative expression, away with. All point to the same view of the text before us, viz., a complete atonement for sin. The use of the present tense, taketh away, is remarked by all the best commentators, ancient and modern. It is intended to show the completeness of Christ's satisfaction for sin and the continual application of his once-made sacrifice. He is always taking sin away. Rollock observes, The influence of Christ's sacrifice is perpetual, and his blood never dries up. The idea maintained by some, that taking away sin, in this place, includes sanctification as well as justification, seems to me quite untenable. That Christ takes away the power of a believer's sins when he applies his redemption to his soul is no doubt true, but it is not the truth of this text. THE SIN Let it be noted that the singular number is used here. It is the sin, not the sins. The expression seems to me purposely intended to show that what Christ took away, and bore on the cross, was not the sin of certain people only, but the whole accumulated mass of all the sins of all the children of Adam. He bore the weight of all, and made an atonement sufficient to make satisfaction for all. The idea propounded by some that the sin, which Christ is said here to take away, is only man's original sin, and that for man's actual sins each man must make satisfaction himself, is destitute of the slightest foundation in Scripture, contradicts scores of plain texts, and utterly overthrows the whole gospel. Of the world It is almost needless to say that there are two views of this expression. Some say that it only means that Christ takes away the sins of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and that it does not mean the sin of any but the elect. Others say that it really means that Christ taketh away the sin of all mankind, that is, that he made an atonement sufficient for all, and that all are salvable, though not all saved, in consequence of his death. I decidedly prefer the latter of these two views. I hold as strongly as any one that Christ's death is profitable to none but to the elect who believe on his name, but I dare not limit and pare down such expressions as the one before us. I dare not say that no atonement has been made in any sense except for the elect. I believe it is possible to be more systematic than the Bible in our statements. When I read that the wicked who are lost deny the Lord that bought them, Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1, and that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19, 
I dare not confine the intention of redemption to the saints alone. Christ is for every man. I am aware the objection is often made that, if Christ taketh away the sin of the world, and yet the vast majority of men die in their sins and are lost, Christ's work for many was wrought in vain. I see no force in this objection. I think we might as well argue that because sin came into the world and marred creation, creation was in vain. We are not talking of the works of men, but of the eternal word, and we must be content to see much in his works that we do not entirely understand. Though multitudes are lost, I have no doubt that the last day will prove that nothing that Christ did for them was in vain. I rest in the view of the text, that in some ineffable and inscrutable way, the whole world's sin was born and atoned for by Christ. He taketh away, or makes atonement for, the sin of all the men and women in the world. I have no doubt from Scripture that the vast majority of the world's inhabitants will be found at last to have received no benefit from Christ, and to have died in their sins. I repudiate the idea of universal salvation as a dangerous heresy and utterly contrary to Scripture. But the lost will not prove to be lost because Christ did nothing for them. He bore their sins. He carried their transgressions. He provided payment, but they would not be put in their claim to any interest in it. He set the prison door open to all, but the majority would not come out and be free. In the work of the Father in election, and of the Spirit in conversion, I see limitation in the Bible most clearly, but in the work of Christ in atonement I see no limitation. The atonement was made for all the world, though it is applied to and enjoyed by none but believers. Christ's intercession is the peculiar privilege of his people, but Christ's atonement is a benefit which is offered freely and honestly to all mankind. In saying this, I am fully aware that the word world is sometimes used in a qualified sense and must be interpreted with some limitation. When it is said, the world knew him not, John chapter 1 verse 10, it cannot mean that not a single person in the world knew him, but in the text before us I see no necessity for limitation. I see the whole mass of mankind's guilt brought together in one singular word, the sin of the world, and that sin, I am told, Christ taketh away, and I believe the true meaning to be that the Lamb of God has made atonement sufficient for all mankind, though efficient unquestionably to none but believers. Augustine remarks, how weighty must be the blood of the Lamb, by whom the world was made, to turn the scale when weighed against the world. Calvin, in his commentary on this verse, says, John uses the word sin in the singular number for any kind of iniquity, as if he had said that every kind of unrighteousness which alienates men from God is taken away by Christ. And when he says, the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race, that the Jews might not think he had been sent to them alone. Hence we infer that the whole world is involved in the same condemnation, and that as all men, without exception, are guilty of unrighteousness before God, they need to be reconciled to him. John the Baptist, by speaking generally of the sin of the world, intended to impress upon us the conviction of our own misery, and to exhort us to seek the remedy. Now our duty is to embrace the benefit which is offered to all, that each of us may be convinced that there is nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ, provided that he comes to him by the guidance of faith. Brentius says, Although all the men in the world do not receive the benefit of Christ's passion, because all do not believe on Christ, yet that benefit is so offered to the whole world 
that whosoever, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, king or peasant, high or low, rich or poor, sick or well, old or young, receives Christ by faith, is justified before God, and saved with an eternal salvation. Musculus says, John places before us no one particular person whose sins the Lamb has come to take away, but under the expression, the world, he comprehends the whole race of mortals from the very beginning of the world to the end of it. Melachthon says, He taketh away the sin, that is, the universal condemnation, of the human race. Chemnitius says, John affirms that the benefits of Christ belong not to the Jews only, but to the whole world, and that no one who is in the world is excluded from them, if he is only willing to receive them by faith. The deep spiritual knowledge exhibited by John the Baptist in this verse ought not to be overlooked. Such a sentence as the one before us never fell from the lips of any other disciple of Christ before the day of Pentecost. Others could say that our Lord was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King of Israel, the Son of the Blessed, who was to come into the world. But none seems to have seen so clearly as John that Christ was the sacrifice for sin, the Lamb that was to be slain. Well would it be for the Church of Christ in the nineteenth century if all its ministers possessed as much knowledge of Christ's atonement as is here shown by John the Baptist. John saw the vicarious sacrifice of Christ before he died on the cross. Many so-called Christians cannot see Christ's vicarious sacrifice even at this day. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said. These words appear to have been spoken in our Lord's presence, and to have been specially intended to point the multitude to him. This person before you is he of whom I have repeatedly spoken in my ministry, as the coming one who is far greater than myself. You see him now before you. A man, he was before me. The human and divine natures of our Lord are here brought together by John in one sentence. He of whom I spake to you is a man, and yet at the same time he is one who was before me, because he has existed from all eternity. Verse 31. I knew him not. This means, I was not acquainted with him in time past. There has been no private collusion or arrangement between him and me. I did not even know him by sight until the day when he came to be baptized. The difficulty connected with these words of John will be considered fully at the 33rd verse. That he should be made manifest to Israel, etc., John here declares that the great end of his ministry was that this wonderful person, whom he had just pointed out, should be manifested and made known to the Jews. He did not come to form a party of his own or to baptize in his own name. The whole object of his preaching and baptizing was now before his hearers. It was simply to make known to Israel the Mighty One, the Lamb of God, whom they now saw. Verse 32 And John bare record. These words seem to denote a public and solemn testimony borne by John to the fact that our Lord had been visibly acknowledged by God the Father as the Messiah. If his hearers would have further proof that this person, to whom he was pointing them, was really the Christ, he would tell them what he had seen with his own eyes. He would bear witness that he had seen visible proofs that this person was really the Messiah. I saw. This means, at the time when our Lord was baptized, I saw this heavenly vision. 
whether any besides john saw this vision and heard the voice of the father which accompanied it may well be doubted at any rate if they did they did not understand either what they saw or heard the spirit descending etc this means that john saw something coming down from heaven after the manner of a dove flying downwards and that what he saw was the holy spirit graciously revealing himself in a visible manner it abode upon him this means that the heavenly vision of the holy spirit rested upon christ at the time of his baptism it lighted down upon him as a dove would settle down and did not leave him i cannot satisfy myself that the expression like a dove in this verse means that any dove was really seen by john when our lord was baptized all the four gospel writers describe an appearance like a dove st luke distinctly speaks of a bodily shape that something visible was seen by john is plain and that its appearance descending on our lord resembled the downward flight of a dove is also plain but i am unable to see that the holy ghost took upon him the actual form of a dove some think as augustine that the likeness to a dove was especially employed at this time to answer the figure of noah's flood he says as the dove did at that time bring tidings of the abating of the water so doth it now of the abating of the wrath of god upon the preaching of the gospel we must beware of supposing for a moment that this vision of the spirit descending was meant to imply that our lord first received the grace of the holy spirit at that particular time or that he had not received it before in the same degree we must not doubt that the holy ghost dwelt in jesus without measure from the very time of his incarnation the vision was meant to show the church that when christ's ministry began a fuller revelation of all three persons of the trinity was made at once to mankind it was meant at the same time to be a formal testimony to john the baptist that the messiah was before him that this was the promised saviour whom god had anointed with the holy ghost and sent into the world that the time of christ's ministry had begun that he who had the spirit to bestow on men was before him and that his entrance on his public work was attested by the presence both of the father and the holy ghost in short by a manifestation of all three persons in the trinity at one time as a levite john was doubtless familiar with all the ceremonies by which the jewish high priests and kings were solemnly inducted into their office for his satisfaction therefore our lord received visible attestation from heaven and was publicly recognized as the messiah anointed priest and king and prophet before his forerunner's eyes musculus on this verse remarks the spirit did not descend on christ's account who was never separate either from the holy spirit or from the father but on our account that he who came to redeem the world might be made manifest through john's declaration of him verse thirty three i knew him not the greek word so rendered both here and in the thirty-first verse is literally i had not known him there is a difficulty connected with the expression which demands explanation st matthew tells us that when our lord came to john to be baptized john said to him i have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me matthew chapter three verse fourteen showing plainly by these words that he knew he was before him and yet here we find john saying i knew him not how can this apparent inconsistency be reconciled some think as chrysostom that john is speaking of former times and not of the times near to his baptism some think as augustine that it means i had not known till that day that jesus would baptize with the holy ghost 
although I had long known him personally and had recognized him as the Christ of God. But when he came to be baptized, it was also revealed to me that he would confer on men the great gift of the Holy Ghost. Some think, as Brentius and Beza, that it means, I had not known Jesus by sight until the day when he came to be baptized. I knew that he had been born of the Virgin Mary, but was not personally acquainted with him, having been myself brought up in the desert. Luke chapter 1 verse 80. I had only been told by him who sent me to baptize that whenever the Messiah came to be baptized, I should recognize him by the descent of the Holy Ghost. When he did come, I received a secret revelation from God that Messiah stood before me, and under the power of that feeling I confessed my unworthiness to baptize him. But when at last I did baptize him, I received a full confirmation of my faith by beholding the promised sign of the descent of the Holy Ghost. Those who hold this view think the case of Samuel receiving a secret revelation about Saul an illustration of the matter. 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 15. Some think, as Poole, that it means, I knew him not perfectly and distinctly, though I had an impression when I first saw him coming to be baptized, that he was one far greater than myself, and under that impression demurred to baptizing him. After his baptism I saw clearly who he was. The last explanation is perhaps the simplest and most probable, that John at one time did not know our Lord by sight at all, that he afterwards knew him imperfectly, and that his perfect knowledge of him, his nature, office, and work, was not attained till the time when the Spirit descended at his baptism, are points that seem clear. The time when he said, I have need to be baptized of thee, would seem to be the time of imperfect knowledge, when the fact that Jesus was the Messiah began to dawn upon him, and made him cry out, Comest thou to me? Chrysostom observes that the expression is a proof that the miracles which they say belong to Christ's childhood are false, and the invention of those who bring them to notice. For if he had begun from his early age to work miracles, neither could John have been ignorant of him, nor would the multitude have needed a teacher to make him known. He that sent me, same said. This expression indicates that John the Baptist had many special revelations of God concerning his work, of which we have no record given to us. He seems to have been taught and instructed like one of the old prophets. He which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost The remarkable description of our Lord, here given by John the Baptist, has received three different interpretations. Some think that it means, This is he who shall institute Christian baptism, with which the gift of the Holy Spirit shall be connected. His baptism shall be like mine, a baptism of water. But it shall not be a baptism of water only, as mine is, but a baptism accompanied by the regenerating grace of the Spirit. Some think that it means, This is he who shall baptize with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, and confer miraculous gifts to the church. Some think it means, this is he who shall baptize the hearts of men, which neither thou canst do, nor any other human minister. He has the prerogative of giving spiritual life. He is the giver of the Holy Spirit to all who believe on him. I am decidedly of the opinion that this third view is the correct one. It is the only one which seems at all answerable to the majesty of the person spoken of, the dignity of the speaker, and the solemnity of the occasion. To say, this is he who shall institute Christian baptism, seems a very lame and impotent account of the expression. To say, This is he who shall bestow miraculous gifts at the day of Pentecost, is a degree better, but gives a picture of our Lord's office confined to a single generation. But to say, 
this is he who in every age of the church will baptize the hearts of his people by the holy ghost and by this baptism continually replenish the ranks of his mystical body is saying that which exactly suits the occasion and describes our lord's work in the world in a worthy manner musculus on this verse remarks what is it to baptize with the holy ghost it is to regenerate the hearts of the elect and consecrate them into the fellowship of the sons of god again he says it is christ alone who baptizes with the holy ghost a power which as divine he keeps in his own hands and never communicates to any minister the view i have maintained is ably set forth in bucer's commentary on this place he says by the baptism of water we are received into the outward church of god by the baptism of the spirit into the inward church the opinion of one who was regis professor divinity at cambridge in the reign of edward the sixth and the personal friend and adviser of cramer and other english reformers deserves much consideration it proves at any rate that the doctrine of inward baptism of the spirit which christ alone gives to every believer and the identity of this baptism with conversion or new birth are not such modern and contemptible notions as some persons are pleased to think the untenableness of the view held by many that john's baptism was not the same as christian baptism to all intents and purposes is ably shown by lightfoot in his harmony of the four evangelists if it was not christian baptism it would be hard to prove that some of the disciples ever received christian baptism at all there is not the slightest evidence that andrew peter and philip were baptized by jesus the familiarity which john displays with the holy ghost and his work deserves particular attention to say as many do that the holy ghost was not known until the day of pentecost is saying what cannot be proved the holy ghost has always been in the hearts of believers in every age of the world his abundant outpouring is undoubtedly a leading mark of the days since christ came into the world but the holy ghost was ever in god's elect and without him there never was a soul saved verse thirty four i saw and bear record etc this means i saw perfectly and from that time have distinctly and unhesitatingly testified that the person whom you now see before you is the christ the son of the living god from the day of his baptism i have been fully convinced that this is the messiah john here declares his own firm conviction of our lord's divinity and eternal generation he was satisfied that our lord was not the son of mary only but the son of god end of section six